I am Dr. Corey Shockey, the Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, and this is Sound Strategic, our house podcast to celebrate the excellence and intellectual creativity of IISS scholars and analysts. And it is my great good fortune today to have with me Sarah Rain, educated at Trinity College, Oxford, eight years a diplomat in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office of the United Kingdom, where among other things, she served in the Balkans in the most difficult years there. Uh, she is both a consultant uh, on financial and geoeconomic issues. She has worked out of the Singapore office of this institute. She has the broadest span of geographic control of anyone I know at the institute, since she is both a first-rate expert on China and also on all things European. And in fact, she has an Adelphi book just about to come out titled Europe's Strategic Future, From Crisis to Coherence. Sarah, thank you for coming to talk with me. Corey, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And um, the first question we always ask everybody, which feels kind of ridiculous given your subject, is uh, what about your work is in the news right now, my friend? So at the end of this week, Thursday and Friday, the leaders of the EU 28 member states will sit down and begin formal discussions on who will lead the EU's key institutions through the next electoral cycle that will last from 2019 to 2024. And they will also adopt the EU's strategic agenda for this period. So in practice, what that means we'll be seeing in the news in the weeks ahead is a lot of focus on discord and disagreement that is about to manifest itself as the different EU leaders negotiate for their interests, at least running through until the inaugural session of the new European Parliament that starts on July the 2nd. Now, there's going to be a lot of focus on the personalities, who gets what top job. But of course, what's actually more interesting is what does that mean in policy terms? What are the individuals that we're talking about in the media? What outlooks do they stand for? What bargains are being struck behind the scenes that mean that we get the results that we will see? And what does that mean uh, for what to expect for the EU's institutions in the years ahead? So if I can just give one for example. We're going to see a standoff between President Macron and Chancellor Merkel over the Spitzenkandidat, who's going to lead the European Commission. Okay, for those people who are not EU nerds, mm. Spitzenkandidat? So the Spitzenkandidat is the person that is the lead candidate for the party grouping. So the top uh, MP, if you like, the top candidate for the party political grouping. In this case, the top party political grouping is the EPP, the European People's Party, the centre-right party, and its lead candidate is Manfred Weber. But President Macron has made it uh, fairly clear that he is sceptical uh, about uh, Weber's uh, leadership of the European Commission, and he's going to push for other options. So how these discussions develop and how they ultimately resolve themselves 
will, I think, have implications for the functioning of the Franco-German dynamics that are so critical for the EU's uh, functioning in the years ahead. And that means, you know, questions on the reform of the euro and also more questions about, you know, Franco-German compromises when it comes, for example, to the management of Brexit and a potential extension request come October the 31st. Uh, so one of my favorite NATO historians, Stanley Sloan, uh, uh, is fond of saying that the three oldest refrains in the Western world are uh, deterrence is breaking down, NATO needs new thinking, um, and NATO's in crisis, right? Because all of those things are always, always true. true. But they also mask the fundamental success of the enterprise because NATO's always in crisis and yet it's succeeding at its fundamental tasks. Does, the, does dispute in the EU strike you as the same way? Or are these differences between France and Germany no longer routine, but, but much more fundamental? And are the, the candidates for these positions somehow totemic for the deeper divergence of a common vision, um, about a common vision of Europe. Sure, so I think the first thing to say is I think you're right, that differences are part of the story. This is what, uh, uh, how institutions function, and they can even be healthy, but they're certainly an inevitable part of the story. And the EU, just like NATO, can always be in crisis, but somehow it finds itself still center stage in the management of many issues. And one of the things I always say to people when they take a more critical line on the EU is I think it's important whether you're talking about the EU, whether you're talking about NATO, whether you're talking about leadership in other contexts, to look not at where an institution and an individual fails, but where they can add value. What do they actually manage to contribute? Mm -hmm. Because if we judge institutions by where they are in crisis and where they're failing to deliver, then we're missing, I think, part of the story which is where they are actually contributing and adding value. So I can think of two areas that I would mark as major EU successes. Mm -hmm. And the first would be uh, setting a global standard on data privacy that everybody else is, you know, after our rough and tumble experiences of less regulation elsewhere, likely, or at least the free societies likely converging to. And the second thing is economic crisis management. If I had been asked to bet money on whether the Greek crisis, whether the Euro could be sustained through the political tribulations of, of Greece in 2015, I, and that Greece would voluntarily remain in the financial mechanism, I would not have bet my money that way, and yet, it looked like the combination of the head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, giving unflinching support to the currency, and Angela Merkel adroitly moving fast enough to stay ahead of markets, but slow enough that she could actually bring German, the German public along. Like, I wouldn't have bet my money on any of that. What are your favorite yeah. examples you, of EU success? You and many others, Corey. <laughs> I mean, I think one of the interesting things, I think, is that we talk, especially in defense and security terms, a lot about resilience these days. And I think this is one of the areas, resilience, perseverance, um, uh, an ability to sustain effort, 
where actually there is more and more focus uh, from the EU's side, whether that's in pure defence terms or whether that's looking to start to a better track record, for example, on Russia sanctions, which I fully appreciate from a US perspective in particular remain uh, arguably uh, certainly weaker than US sanctions on Russia. But nevertheless, if you turn the clock back into the days after the annexation of Crimea and the subsequent um, uh, troubles in eastern Ukraine, and you ask people at that time to suggest what EU sanctions would be forthcoming and for how long they would be sustained, I think uh, you would not have I wouldn't got have bet my money that way either, right? Yeah. That despite... Uh, all that's going on in Italy and Greece and efforts by the Russian to make economic and uh, subterranean political inroads in those societies, they're actually Here holding they still up are. great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think there's one other area as well that I'm not going to count yet as an EU success because it's far from it. In fact, it's the risk is that if the EU doesn't get this right, it will turn into a catastrophic failure. But it also will be in the news this week, and I think it is very important in terms of perseverance and the themes we're talking about, which is uh, the EU's management of the Western Balkans 6. Because, again, this week, uh, there should be a decision on the uh, opening of accession talks with North Macedonia and Albania. And this is an area, uh, the Western Balkans, which the EU basically took its eye off the ball, and where others uh, have started to make inroads, whether that's China, Turkey, Russia, Iran, more and more influences, strategic competition in the Balkans that is refocusing and asking some pretty fundamental questions of the EU, its willingness to consider further enlargement, its resilience, perseverance to follow through on a commitment that stretches right the way back to 2003 in Thessaloniki when the EU told the Western Balkans six that their future fundamentally lay in the European Union. Would we in the West really fail to reward North Macedonia for the enormous political adroitness um, and the toughness of getting the referendum passed by not opening accession talks? Is that an actual possibility? That's very much a risk. Uh, President Macron of France, um, other leaders, uh, for example, in the Netherlands, have uh, expressed concern about opening uh, accession talks uh, if uh, where, where, they, where that lead and what is the ordering. Do we prioritise getting reform through the existing EU before considering a further round of enlargement. But I agree with you, not just for the sake of North Macedonia, although North Macedonia is extremely important, but also for the areas of instability. Because when North Macedonia has done all the reforms that has been asked of it, when the Commission report says, yes, they are actually as far advanced as the front runners in the succession process, which is Montenegro and Serbia, If we turn round and say, sorry, that's still not good enough, what message does that send to ethno-nationalists, for example, in Bosnia? Yeah, and to the extent uh, one considers the authoritarian trend in Turkey to be related at all to the collapse of confidence that Turkey had a European vocation and that there was ever going to be Turkish accession into the EU, uh, that... It's a dark 
I, like, I'm a big believer in the EU's neighborhood policy. I think it did an enormous amount of good for Europe's security by stabilizing countries in during their transition to free societies and free markets. And it, it would be tragic to see the EU lose confidence in its ability and also lose the value uh, that it has gained through those kinds of policies of, of cajoling countries towards being the kinds of societies that are going to be prosperous and European in all the right kinds of political and cultural ways. Absolutely. So, 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 Sarah Rain, how did you get interested in this kind of work? So, uh, I was lucky enough after university to join the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. One of the privileges of working as a diplomat is that you get to bounce around from job to job, from brief to brief. It's fabulous. It's also frustrating because you get to understand your brief, fall in love with your brief, and then move on. <laughs> um, and one of the indulgences of the think tank world for me is an ability to follow through a little bit more on personal interests and take a little bit more time uh, to reap some of the privileges of starting to genuinely really understand your brief rather than be moved on. But I think maybe more interesting for, is, um, for listeners is how did I get more interested in looking at the world from a European security perspective? Yes. And here there is a bit more of a story, which dates back to a front cover of The Economist magazine in 2009 when I'm working for IISS as a research associate on Chinese <laughs> foreign and security policy out of the Singapore office. And uh, the front cover of The Economist magazine is based on a famous New Yorker magazine cover of a New Yorker's view of the world. But this is how China sees the world. So parenthetically, since I'm from the provincial country talking about, the New Yorker cover she's talking about shows a Manhattan perspective looking west, and there's basically no Midwest there's Los Angeles and San Francisco. Like, it's just a completely <laughs> solipsistic view of the world. Okay, go so, on. So, well, in, in the China version, here is China, center stage, middle of the world, and frankly, not very much beyond. There's the Pacific Ocean and America. You know, there's Africa a bit out there, and right at the very back, there's this tiny island, Europe, with two arrows pointing to it, <laughs> Hermes and Prada. <laughs> and at this moment, you find yourself thinking, how is it possible that European nations and that the EU that has so much at stake in the nature of China's rise is failing so absolutely to project itself and its interests. And that started a sort of conversation for me about trying to understand how that looked a little bit more. And I have to say, when the moment came to move from Singapore back to Europe, uh, there was a certain element of perverse pride sort of chatting to Chinese colleagues explaining my career decision, <laughs> with them slightly bemusedly thinking, why would you why would you turn away from studying up close the future of the 21st century <laughs> to live in a continent whose time has so clearly passed? And uh, therein, of course, confirming the Economist uh, front cover. Exactly. And it will come as a great delight to Bill Emmett, the chairman of our board of trustees and the former editor of The Economist, <laughs> that your entire professional influence. life was <laughs> shaped by that decision. And how about your favorite book in your field? 
So this is always a fun question, and I decided on this one that um, to look, since we're talking a bit about what the EU strategic agenda will be uh, for the coming electoral cycle, who will get the EU top jobs, to pick a book on leadership. And it's a book that you will almost certainly know, written by Stanley McChrystal last year, or co-written, I should say, uh -huh. called Leaders, Myths and Reality. And I think, it, let me tell you about the book and then I'll tell you why I think it's interesting. The book is basically, you know, 13 potted bios of leaders from different times. And it's not so much the bios that are interesting, frankly. You can, if you're interested to know more about Walt Disney or know Zakawa, you can go and read about that. What's interesting for me is the introduction and the conclusion. And it's interesting because of the conclusion that actually uh, one of the myths is this sort of myth of big man leadership that leadership is not always about sitting at the top apex of a triangle, but rather putting yourself as a node in a network that successfully allows that network to operate. And for me, that's quite a compelling message when we look at how you effectively run as a leader in a European sense of European institutions, because there's this tendency to bemoan the passage of the good old days and all we need is the really good leaders, you know, the days of Adenauer and de Gaulle, right. the days of Kohl and Mitterrand, and if we only had these great leaders again, everything would be fine. And I'm just not too sure that that's remotely true, frankly. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, this, this mythological era in which great men stood astride the world and, and the paucity of them now is... I, I wish I knew when that period was. Uh, moreover, I've always liked Eisenhower's description of leadership, which it sounds like Stan's book picks up. Eisenhower said that the only manner of leadership he understood was about persuasion, about persistence, about forgiveness, about reconstruction. And that's the only kind he, he knew and the only kind he knew how to practice. That's very interesting. And, and again, that would fit in a European context because I think what's going to happen in the next few months is there's going to be a new HR high representative vice president picked who will basically represent the EU on foreign policy on the world stage. And there'll be quite a lot of chest beating if that person doesn't, isn't sort of already a big known figure, a missed opportunity because they're not a statesman. And yes, a little bit. But that's not fundamentally what leadership is, is about, especially when you're trying to corral 27 EU or 28, <laughs> depending, right. member states towards a common agenda. And where the prime ministers and heads of state who make up the council are unlikely to commit their countries on important issues on the basis of having a great man as that, right? Like their Precisely. national interest. A, a negotiator, a facilitator, somebody who can bring people together, identify trade space, may actually be the kind of leadership that better suits those responsibilities. I agree. Yeah. And, and, and where is the conventional wisdom in your field wrong, Sarah? <laughs> so, in the wake of the European Union's inadequate response to the first Gulf War, Belgian Foreign Minister Mark Eskins famously characterizes the European Union as an economic giant, a political pygmy, and a military worm. 
And this is the basis for thousands of uh, articles <laughs> and sort of a lot of angst from academics in the years that have uh, succeeded. And my contention is not so much that Eskins was wrong at the time, but that 18 years later on, with a different union, in a very different world, that characterization may have outlived its usefulness. And I was thinking this as we uh, both sat at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue, uh, which the ISS hold every year in Singapore, and where military leaders, including Acting Secretary of State Shanahan, repeatedly stressed that economic security and military security were two sides of the same coin. And the economic strength, for example, positioning yourself at the center of the world's largest free trade network, is also political strength. So where the EU can remain united and show political will, they have substantial strength, for example, as a sanctioning power. And meanwhile, there's no escaping the utility of hard military power, of course. But in a world of hybrid warfare, where national security threats include the spread of disinformation, electoral interference, the malign foreign investment in strategic security sectors, the EU is simply being forced, if only by dint of circumstances, to sort of start outgrowing that characterization. So I'm not, my pushback is modest. I'm not arguing for sort of an immediate promotion to giant status, <laughs> far from it, but more for a recognition that in a world where we're talking more about what middle powers can contribute to the future of multilateralism, to the liberal international order, the EU's not a pygmy at all. In fact, the partnerships that the EU can strike, whether that's with Australia, Canada, Japan, actually have quite a lot of influence in what lies ahead for us all. I agree that uh, the discussion about the percentage of GDP being spent on defense is um, emasculating to the contributions that Europeans make to our common defense, but it also, it persuades them that they are, well, I guess this is the emasculation, it persuades them they're not contributing, when in fact um, there is an enormous amount that middle powers are right now doing to stabilize and sustain the liberal order at a time when the United States is feeling reckless in that regard and when China and Russia are trying to chip away at it. Absolutely. I think I see increasing activism by middle powers in that regard. Absolutely. Let me ask you though, mm -hmm. does the argument that you just made about hybrid warfare, does that mean you would you uh, support the German government's suggestion that we should include spending on cyber or on immigration in, in defense? Look, the issue of defense spending is of course fundamental to capabilities. So yes, it matters how much we spend and how much we spend it, but I don't really want to get into, and I think it's not healthy for any of us to get into this game where we say, well, that metric isn't quite perfect, how about this metric? And then we all argue about whether that metric is perfect. Let's look at the outputs. Let's look at where, what we have and what we need to have. And this is somewhere where 
uh, ISS, frankly, other colleagues of ours have done a fabulous job, uh, in particular uh, DMAP here, our Department for Military Analysis, in doing precisely that and not worrying too much about the validity of the 2% and looking more at Europe as a whole and saying these are the capabilities that we have and if we want to meet uh, meet success in these different criteria, this is what we actually need. That's the gap we need to worry about. Yep, and uh, dear listeners, if any of you have not already read the analysis on what the sticker price of European strategic autonomy is, it's a fabulous piece of work and I commend it to you. Sarah, what's your favorite work you've done? So, there's something deeply uncomfortable about that question, but I guess Only I'm going to take you're British. <laughs> For Americans, this is a it's the start of our favorite conversation about our awesomeness. <laughs> so I'm going to say, um, given that we have uh, have this book launch coming up, I'm going to take it as free uh, publicity for the Adelphi book that I've just written called Europe's uh, Strategic Future that basically looks at the consequences for Europe and its union of a decade of parallel and overlapping crises, starting with the Euro crises, through to the crises in the neighborhood, to the east and to the south, through to the migration crisis, to the potential membership membership crisis that Brexit was, and to a possible transatlantic security crisis uh, that's to come or already underway, depending on your point of view. And the book looks at the internal consequences for how the EU and European nations cooperate on security and defense, but also for the external consequences in foreign policy and security and defense policy. And it asks if perhaps, just perhaps, the first signs of something of a modest strategic awakening are starting to be seen. And the reason that I'm a little proud of this work, I think, is because the challenge is it's slightly counter-cyclical because there's going to be so much on the state of the euro, the state of uh, populism in Europe. And in this business, as you know, it's never very easy to be optimistic. It's far smarter to be pessimistic. Absolutely. You look much more serious-minded <laughs> if you're cynical and pessimistic. Who was it? George Will, who said something along the lines, I'm going to get it a little bit wrong, but that it was far better always to be pessimistic because that way you either looked incredibly smart or were pleasantly surprised. <laughs> and that's not advice that I've taken to heart. Um, and... Uh, the message of the book is not so much one of blind optimism. It's grounded very much in a reality, frankly, that's pretty pessimistic about the security circumstances and the security environment in which Europe finds itself, but trying to say, let's not miss the boat of signs of change. Let's not stick with lazy characterizations when actually there are some signs of change. Um, and the other thing that's interesting about the book that for me was interesting was, of course, that one of the variables about how Europe and the EU will perform as a strategic actor in the years ahead will be the handling of Brexit. Right. And Brexit was meant to be this moving target. So as I was writing this book, I was thinking, well, how do I handle the discussion <laughs> of Brexit as a key variable? And this was a moving target that still hasn't quite moved um, because we don't know where we're heading. <laughs> So uh, give me one example of what you think an important external consequence of the crises that Europe has navigated. Maybe pick one from the immigration crisis. 
So a realization that the EU has a role in security as well. Up till now, heads of state of the EU28 have um, vociferously defended uh, security uh, interests as a sovereign member right. And of course, we've had databases and information sharing around um, counterterrorism, for example. But the securing of borders, this was something that was very much the business of a nation state. And I think now, after the migration crisis, there has been a realization that actually Schengen is not sustainable. The free movement of people across the borders is not sustainable if you don't have a secure outer border. And the only way that Europe has a more secure outer border is through greater cooperation in the field of security and defense between the EU 28 members. That's an excellent illustration of the overarching theme of the book. Uh, last question, what's your favorite data visualization? So in the context that we were just discussing, uh, my favorite data visualization is actually, again, from IISS colleagues. And it's published uh, in the series that, that they have done on Brexit and security. Uh, we talk a lot about strategic autonomy. Is that an aspiration that Europe can possibly seek to fulfill? What does that mean for the transatlantic relationship? There's a lot of discussion still to be worked through about how Europeans define strategic autonomy for themselves and how they sell it to other partners in ways that don't undermine but rather support, frankly, the most successful alliance in history. And um, one of the reasons I like this graphic, which portrays the UK's share of overall military equipment holdings in the EU as of 2018, is because it underlines to all involved in Brexit discussions the fundamental importance of getting the discussion on the future arrangements between the UK and the EU27, however, Brexit, the withdrawal agreement turns out, of getting those relationships right. Because the graphics are startling. You know, the UK holds over 50% of the combined intelligence and surveillance and reconnaissance heavy UAVs. You work your way through some 12 charts of the UK contribution in every single chart. It's a reminder of why it is that, sure, we may be at a stage where we're all laughing at the UK's politics, but we shouldn't laugh at all at what the UK's contribution is and could be on the defence and security perspective. And that's why that conversation needs to be kept as isolated as possible from the more political discussions, the economic discussions. And we need to start having conversations sooner rather than later about how this relationship looks like um, in the years ahead. I think that's a really important point. Europe and Britain are still going to need each other after this. And a lot of the kind of a joyful shooting out the windows of the building that's been going on from the critics, both inside Britain and outside Britain, of, of the leadership failures and policy choices on both sides have been destructive of that continued necessity of cooperation. Absolutely. We have to look at a situation now where Task Force 50 is sort of, this, which is the EU's negotiating body with the UK, is understandably dissipating. Uh, there are less people there to actually negotiate with whenever the UK gets a new prime minister. 
but there really is not much time left to start talking about what's the UK's role in European strategic autonomy. How is the UK, whatever its future relationship looks like, going to ensure that its industry and that its policy experience is all continues to be plugged in given these fundamental shared security concerns that we all have. Sarah Rain, this has been such a great education for me about uh, the underappreciation of the resilience that the European Union has created for Europe on a lot of these policy areas, a caution about the uh, risk that the European discussions on accession for the Western Balkans 6 will go wrong because of uh, French and Dutch concern about, um, about whether people whether these countries have met the standards and the consequences for backlash in those countries if the goalposts get moved now. Uh, a, a delightful encouragement and, and tribute to the value of being a diplomat in your country's service. Uh, an interesting reflection on uh, the types of leadership appropriate to different circumstances and the way that McChrystal's judgment about leadership being um, much more, much less kind of a great man standing astride a powerful horse and much more about negotiating and reconciling different attitudes is in fact a really good one for thinking about the next high representative for the European Union. Uh, an interesting discussion about the ways economic security and military security, it is once again becoming fashionable to understand they're related, uh, and the enduring importance of Britain in the security of Europe, whether it is inside the European Union or outside. Sarah Rain, thank you for this education, my friend. Thank you very and much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for the great work you do for this institution. <laughs> I'm privileged. Thank you. Thank you.